I want to open this morning by being honest with you all that as I've been preparing this sermon I'm about to preach, I have felt an incredible weight and burden on me over the things that we are about to discuss. It's felt as if a heavy stone has been placed upon my shoulders that I was not going to be able to remove until I spoke with you all this morning, as if there's been a fire that was placed on my chest that wasn't going to go out until I was able to preach with you all. Now, to some degree, every sermon feels this way. Every time I get behind the pulpit, it's not lost on me that the Lord and his kindness and sovereignty is using me to function as his own herald. And that is honestly a terrifying thing. It always weighs on me that I will be judged with a stricter standard when I open God's word for you all. And that I never forget that our very salvation and eternal destiny is in the balance when we open up God's word. So every time I preach, it is a weighty thing. But even with that said, there's something that has been uniquely challenging in my spirit as I have sought to prepare this sermon. I want to be transparent about the spiritual warfare that I have felt as I prepared these words. I have felt inadequate and insecure to proclaim these realities to you all this morning, being regularly reminded of my own depravity. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit will work this morning despite my own feebleness, that God in his grace would be kind enough to draw a straight line with a crooked stick such as myself. This morning we are going to explore in depth the excellencies of who God is and what that means for us. We will behold his splendor and glory in fear and in trembling. If we have ears to hear, my prayer is that we would respond as John did in Revelation chapter 1 upon seeing the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory, where he says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead that we would properly fear God this morning, that upon gazing at his glory, we would be stripped bare of all our pride and of all our conceit, that we would see our sin as God sees our sin with a holy hatred. May our stomachs churn and our foreheads sweat as we contemplate our sins against this holy God. May his glory bring us to our knees and help us to contemplate our own sins against him and to make us humble and contrite before him. Please hear me. It can only be from this place that you ever have any hope of embracing the Lord Jesus Christ. It is only after being brought low that Jesus is able to lift us back up again. And unless we grasp our total depravity, unless we accept our wretchedness, unless we see the evil which dwells within each of us, we can never have any hope of understanding the things that we are about to consider. May God in his grace help us understand his wrath this morning. And upon understanding his wrath, we, may we be, then be able to delight in his amazing grace. If you are new or visiting this morning, my name is Ryan Sickinger, and I have the privilege of being able to serve as the family pastor 
here. Normally, Mike McDonald um, gets to preach um, for us, but this morning is my honor and privilege to be able to open God's Word with you all. And we find ourselves in this series, What Does the Bible Say About Blank? And in each of these sermons, we're seeking to answer various questions that were submitted from a biblical worldview. Now, typically, we work book um, by book through the Bible, verse by verse. Um, so this is a little atypical for us, but our desire is that we want to show that God's word is sufficient to answer all of our questions. Now, in this series, what is typical is at the end of the sermon, you guys will have been able to text in questions throughout, and at the end, whoever's preaching will answer those questions in front of you all. And as I was preparing um, this message this week, I just felt that it was not the right note that we needed to end on this morning. And so that being said, my phone number is in, in the bulletin. My um, email is in the bulletin. Please send in those questions still. Um, but this week, decide to forego that time at the very end of the service. The primary text I want us to meditate on is one single verse. This is not typical for us either, and it'll certainly cover much more ground than just this single verse, but I want us to be anchored to one crucial passage, which is Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. And in Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, we see the Lord Jesus Christ hanging upon the cross, about to breathe his last, and he makes this incredible proclamation this is what the word of God has to say to us. It says, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I want to say that this sermon and topic is very much building upon last week's sermon by Pastor Mike. If you didn't see that, I encourage you to re-watch that online, in that we are going to see the necessity of the Old Testament, as well as how all of the scriptures leans and points us to the person and work of Christ. At times, this may even seem repetitive, but I truly believe this is a re repetition that we need and one that we need to be reminded of over and over again. Now, the question which was submitted, which we will be building off of, is what should we make of the violence expressed against the enemies of God versus the commandment to turn the other cheek? As what should we make of the violence expressed against the enemies of God? And I'm assuming that's meaning in the Old Testament, as you see God command the nation of Israel to carry out his judgment against his enemies versus the commandment in the New Testament by the Lord Jesus Christ to turn the other cheek. This is a really good question, and I'm going to seek to answer it in a somewhat concise way, and then we'll spend the remainder or the majority of my time on the question that I think lies behind this question, or the necessary um, fundamental presupposition that we need to have in order to be able to make any sense of the ethic behind this question. But this question is rooted from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. If you want to flip back over to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 38 through 42. And as Jesus was teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, here's one of the things he said. He said, you have heard it, that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now for the concise answer to this question, what is this teaching about and how do we reconcile that with God commanding his people, the nation of Israel, to exercise judgment many times on the enemies of God, is first to point out the discontinuity between that reality that happened in the Old Testament and this teaching here. And that main discontinuity is in the Old Testament, he's addressing the nation of Israel. He's giving that geopolitical nation a command to carry out judgment on another geopolitical nation. Whereas here, as the Lord Jesus is teaching, he's instructing specific individuals. And so comparing them two one for one is not a fair comparison. You see, the New Testament repeatedly affirms the rights of civil authorities to execute judgment. As well, the Old Testament never permits individuals to take vengeance into their own hands. And so once we understand that discontinuity of nation versus individual, we actually see that between the Old and New Testament, there's quite a high degree of consistency between the two. The second thing I want to point out is that turning the other cheek, as described here by the Lord Jesus, is not pacifism, it's gospel grace. Note here that this is not a life-threatening situation. Someone is not coming up to them with a knife to their belly or a gun to their head. What, what happened? They were backhanded. They were slapped. And what we see happening here is Jesus instructing his followers as individuals how to respond when we are insulted. You see, multiple times in the New Testament, as well as the Old Testament, we see examples or justifications for people using self-defense. Jesus himself instructed his disciples to sell their cloak and buy a sword. Well, what were they to use that for? So here, I don't think what he's talking about is all, it's just this type of pacifism that never harms anyone for any reason, but rather, how do you respond when you're insulted, particularly for your love of the Lord? And here he commands them to turn the other cheek. What's being taught is that in the gospel, we must be willing to be mocked, slandered, and insulted for the name of Christ. We do this because we know that through the power of the gospel, an enemy can be made into a friend. You see, in the Old Testament, they viewed so much of their faith nationalistically, and the enemies of God was one nation versus another nation. But in the New Testament, as Jesus is preparing them for new covenant realities, as we see an enemy of God who is slandering us and insulting us and uttering all kinds of evil things about us, we are to view that person, although they are as God's enemy, they can be brought in and made his friend, his son, or his daughter. And thus we extend them grace, we, we give that to them, we go the extra mile for the sake of love of the gospel, for the sake of being willing to be insulted and slandered. And the third point I want to make regarding this question is that we wait for God's ultimate wrath and vengeance. 
What he's not saying here is that those who slap us and slander us and do all kinds of evil things to us are never going to get their judgment. He's saying in this instance, we are to issue them gospel grace, but make no mistake that the enemies of God will be destroyed. And actually the climax of God's judgment is not in the Old Testament, but in the New. We often make the mistake of characterizing the Old Testament God is the wrathful God and the New Testament God is the God of grace, which is, doesn't even really make sense when you think about it, in that the climax of his wrath and judgment is found in the New Testament, not the Old. And never forget that the person that more than anyone else in the New Testament that talked about hell and condemnation was the Lord Jesus himself which leads to where I think we really need to spend the remainder of our time, and that is to seek to understand the wrath and the grace of God. How do we understand these attributes? How do we hold them together? How do they function within the Godhead? Which leads us back to that main text that we find ourselves in Matthew 27, where the Lord Jesus on the cross cries out, My God! My God, why have you forsaken me? As we answer this question of what do we make of the wrath and grace of God, we will focus on three points. The first is the wrath of God, because we tend to misunderstand that. The second is the long-suffering of God, which must be held in tension with that. And finally, the cross of Christ. Let's begin by looking at the wrath of God. God is the God of wrath. Does that make you uncomfortable this morning? What about if I were to say that God is the God of love, or God is the God of mercy, or God is the God of justice? Well, we'd say yes and amen and get fired up, right, and heartily affirm that. I say God is the God of wrath, though. We tend to not get as excited to affirm that truth. But let me ask you, if you remove any one attribute from God, is he still God? You see, our God is a package deal. You cannot take the attributes of him that you like and discard the ones that you find distasteful. That's not the way that it works. God is the God of wrath. He has executed his judgment on sinners. He is presently executing his judgment on sinners, and he will continue to execute his judgment on sinners for all time and forevermore. That is our God. Do you want to know something that is shocking to the average 21st century Christian? If you were to open up a Bible concordance, do you know what you would find? There are more references in Scripture to God's anger, fury, and wrath than there are to his love and tenderness. You can fact check me on that. Look it up. It's amazing. God is wrathful. I want you to lean in and hear me say this, and that's part of his perfection. It's part of his goodness. 
In Deuteronomy 32, 39 through 41, listen to what God says as God is speaking. He says, see now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. Listen to what God does. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and I swear as I live forever, and he does, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. That was God then, and that is God now. And in Psalm chapter 7, verse 11, it states that God is a righteous judge, and listen to the second half of the verse, and a God who feels indignation every day. Every day. That's what our ESV says, but if you have the old King James Version, the second half of that verse says, God is angry with the wicked every day. This should not be a surprise to us. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, as John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, was preparing the way for Christ's arrival, do you know what he warned people and told them? Flee from the wrath to come. Speaking of the arrival of Christ. And this is not only part of God, it is necessary to the perfection of God. Listen to what the great preacher and theologian A.W. Pink wrote regarding God's wrath. He writes, Now the wrath of God is as much a divine perfection as is his faithfulness, power, and mercy. It must be so, for there is no blemish, whatever, not the slightest defect in the character of God. Yet, there would be if wrath were absent from him. Indifference to sin is a moral blemish, and he who hates it not is a moral leper." How can he, who is the sum of all excellency, look with equal satisfaction upon vice and virtue, wisdom and folly? How can he, who is infinitely holy, disregard sin and refuse to manifest his severity toward it? How can he, who delights only in that which is pure and lovely, not loathe and hate that which is impure and vile? We must see that this is not only true of God, but necessary of his goodness. Let me give you all an example of this. We believe that God is love, right? Well, do you love some things? I know I do. And one of the things that I love is I love babies. Aren't babies awesome? And I have been so blessed by the Lord to have babies in my home for the last few years. And it is just such a delight and a joy. I love babies. But do you know what? Because I love babies, I hate and detest abortion. I hate the fact that thousands upon thousands of those sweet little children are being slaughtered in our country every single year. And that's not arbitrary. It's not capricious. It's out of my love for those babies that I hate that sin. 
Let me give you another illustration. I love my wife. She is an incredible gift to me. But if you insult her, if you try to hurt her, if you lie about her, you are going to see some wrath come out of me. As it should be for any husband that loves their wife. And it is because I love her that I have wrath if you were to harm her. And guys, we understand these realities and we're imperfect. We're sinful. Do you get the picture? God is perfectly and justly wrathful to every instance of cosmic treason, every single sin. This God is good. He has not changed. And he does not answer to us. If we find that aspect of his being distasteful, it is us who need to adjust our thinking, not him. And we must remember that the clay does not get to boss the potter around. God is wrathful. Yet we must bring all of this into focus with the storyline of Scripture. To discuss God's wrath, we must also highlight and consider his long-suffering. You see, when we consider the scope of redemptive history, God has refrained time and time and time and time again to give us the wrath that we deserve. There is a reason you and I are sitting here and not, have not been consumed by his holy wrath already. He is indescribably long-suffering. Consider in creation, God creates mankind from the dirt. And with this dirt, he bestows all the dignity and value and beauty you can possibly imagine, stamping his own very image and likeness upon us, gifting humanity with every good thing. And there was only one thing lacking. And did he even satisfy that one thing that was lacking? Yes, with his wife Eve. He was so kind, so gracious. Now let me ask you, does the creator have rights over his creation? Of course he does. We even recognize this as human creators and inventors and artists. This is why we have copyright laws, is it not? Because we understand that those who create something have rights over it. How much more is that true of the immortal, eternal God? So when God gave his creation a single command, would there be any injustice on his part if he were to execute the just sentence for this disobedience? By no means. Yet we all know how this story goes, don't we? Wanting to be like God, they committed cosmic treason against their creator. Can you imagine the insult to the Almighty after gifting them with every good thing. And what was the punishment for their sin? What did he tell them would happen if they were to transgress this one singular law? That the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But did they die that day? They lived another day. And God clothed them in their shame. And he, there was consequences. God's wrath 
was evident in the curses, yet he preserved them. Can you imagine what would have happened if God had given them what they deserved? Humanity would have lasted one generation, yet here we are. Over and over again, we sin against God, and over and over again, he is gracious and kind and merciful and long-suffering. And this is the rolling narrative of Scripture. It's God's wrath and grace intermingled and mankind's rebellion to him over and over again. Think about this. Just the very next generation, after being spared from the death they deserve, what does his offspring do? Kill one another. And does he strike him dead for killing one of his own image bearers that he's just bestowed all this dignity and honor upon? No, not only does God not kill him, but he puts a mark on him of protection so that no one else would kill him. God is gracious, but there was consequences. We see in the days of Noah that the earth had just become utterly depraved and debaucherous and rebellious against God. And God did pour out his wrath, but he preserved one family. Through the ark of salvation, he showed his grace. He did not wipe out humanity total. He was long-suffering with us again. And how did Noah respond in light of this incredible grace of God to save his family? He got off that boat and got drunk as a skunk. And what happened? Once again, man needed to be covered and the shame of his nakedness for his sin against God. And not only did all that transpire, but God promised that he would execute his wrath in that same way ever again. We see with the Tower of Babel that rather than this grateful people understanding their history, wanting to exalt God and build up his name, they want to exalt themselves and build up their own name. And God's wrath was poured out. He d divided their language and spread them out, but that was just a taste of what they deserved. His grace was evident. We see with Sodom and Gomorrah that even these wicked cities that we see God pour his wrath out upon, yet was he not gracious? Did he not give an opportunity for the righteous to escape because of his intercessor? He did. And upon fleeing from the wrath of God, were they fully devoted and faithful? No, what happened to Lot's wife? She instantly rebelled against him. And God's wrath was poured out. But there was still grace. As God's people became enslaved in Egypt, God poured out his wrath in order to free them. And at Sinai, you would think that they would just be on fire with zeal and faithfulness in devotion to the Lord, but what do we see happen? They construct a cow and call it God and do all kinds of evil before it. And God's wrath was poured out on some of them, but yet he kept his promise with them. He did not destroy them all. They did make it into the promised land, and we see God use his wrath against his enemies in order to purchase them into that land. And they responded with grace and faithfulness by serving him so well, right? No. They rebelled against him time and time again. He gave them judges. They didn't listen. He gave them kings. 
And the kings introduced all kinds of idolatry. The nation was divided. We see God's wrath in that. We see God's wrath in them being sent out into exile. But yet he continues to preserve this people by his grace alone. And he brings them back into the land by his grace alone. He was long-suffering with them despite their rebellion over and over and over again. So throughout the Old Testament, we see glimpses of God's wrath, but they are always balanced with his long-suffering and grace. We don't even see nearly the full extent of God's wrath in the Old Testament. God has wrath against their sin, but he was patient and long-suffering with them time and time again. My question to you is, how about you? How has God responded to you in your sin? Has he poured out the wrath that you deserve? Or has he been long-suffering? Has he been patient? Let me ask you this morning, are you sinless? Or have you transgressed God's law? And you might be thinking, I'm a pretty good person. Well, let's go through the spirit of all the Ten Commandments and see how all of us stack up. Have you been faithful? Or have you committed cosmic treason? Let's look. Have you ever worshipped another god? Have you ever worshipped the god of self rather than the god of Scripture? Have you ever tried to craft God in your own image rather than worship who he really is? Have you ever worshipped created things over the creator? Have you ever worshipped your iPhone? If you're unsure, just check your screen time. It might help you answer that. Have you ever been too flippant, too irreverent, too vain in how you spoke or thought about God? Have you ever been foolish enough to use the very lips the Lord crafted in order to curse him? Have you ever dishonored the Sabbath or failed to keep it holy? Have you ever failed to properly rest in the Lord? Have you ever forsaken the gathering of the saints? Have you perfectly honored your father and mother at all times in every instance, perfectly obedient? Have you done that? Have you ever hated another person? Looked at another with contempt? Wished they simply did not exist? Have you ever murdered another inside or outside the womb? Have you ever lusted after a man or a woman that wasn't your husband or wife? What would you do if your internet search history was made public for all to see? Do you allow your eyes to linger where they shouldn't linger? Have you ever entertained thoughts that would make you fall prostrate in shame if they were to be made known to your peers? Have you ever given to someone something that should have been given only to your spouse? Have you ever taken that which is not yours? Ever lied on your time card? Ever swindled in a business deal? Ever misled someone as you were selling them a used car? Ever taken a toy from your brother or sister? Have you ever lied? Careful how you answer that one. Have you ever gossiped, spread a false rumor, lied to parents in order to make your sibling take the blame, hidden your mistake in order to spare the boss's correction, minimized an error in order to save 
face, pass the buck rather than taking responsibility. Have you ever done that? Have you ever desired something that wasn't yours? Of course you have. This is the American way, right? Selfishly desired the bigger house, the nicer car, the more obedient children, whatever it is. Have you ever coveted your neighbor's goods? Now, please listen to me in this. We live in an age of cancel culture and torn down statues. But if our sins were made known, how many of us would be left standing? Who could bear the cultural condemnation for our sins if they were all made public? Who would keep their job? Who wouldn't be blocked from Twitter? Who wouldn't be boycotted? whose legacy wouldn't be trampled and despised. And this is only the condemnation that comes from those who are also evil, equally immoral judges. Yet God, in his perfect holiness, in his infinite perfection, sees every iota of your sins against him. Nothing has ever been hidden from his eyes, yet here you sit, unscorched by his fury against your sin. You, being a child of wrath, a son of disobedience, are still sitting in that chair, unscathed with rings on your fingers and food in your belly. Why? Because God knows you and I deserve it. It is the utter grace of God that he grants any of us our next heartbeat. God's grace. But listen here and listen closely. He will not delay forever. His wrath will be poured out against your sin. You cannot commit cosmic treason forever. Your sins will meet God's wrath and you should be terrified because of this. Which leads to the cross of Christ. In our text, in Matthew 27, 46, where as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God had to deal with our sins. His wrath and justice demanded it. His vengeance and holy hatred must be poured out against all unlawlessness. So what did he do? He left his royal, majestic throne and came down to earth, the Lord of glory, and was born in a stinking barn, lived as an exile, and things got so much better when he grew up that he became homeless. Was he praised? Was he exalted for doing this incredible act of humility? Guys, he was perfect in every way. He would have answered no to every question we just considered in reflecting on our sinfulness. Yet he chose to substitute himself in our place in order to satisfy the wrath of God. 
In John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus says, no one takes it, referring to his life, from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This I charge, I have received from my Father. And right before his arrest, as he was in the garden of Gethsemane, sweating blood because he knew the agony of what was about to come, Jesus prayed to the Father, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What was that cup? It was the wrath of God that he was going to have poured out on himself, and he submits himself to the plan. Shortly after he was arrested, betrayed by his own friend, falsely charged by his own covenant people of blasphemy of all things, they valued a murderous robber, Barabbas, more than their creator and sustainer. Rather than worshiping and praising Jesus as they were created to, to, they screamed, crucify him. Can you hear it? Crucify him to the Lord of glory. They scourged him, whipped him, beat him, and tortured him. To the true king of kings, they mockingly and cruelly placed a crown of thorns upon his head. They nailed him to a tree to die a criminal's death. And do you know what? None of that was even the height of his suffering. As he hung on that cross, the Lord Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he hung on that cross, he bore all the wrath of God for the sin of those he came to save. Every wicked deed, every evil thought, every cruel intention of the heart, every act of cosmic treason, God in the fullness of his wrath and grace bore the punishment on himself. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Us. Us wicked people. He hung on the tree for us. He bore the wrath deserved for us. He took his holy hatred of sin on himself for us. His eternal detesting of all unrighteousness he bore on his own sinless self. He was forsaken for us. Can you fathom that? We sang before the sermon, this gift of love in righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. Do you believe that? Is that true of you? Now, I need you to listen very closely at this moment. This atonement is not a universal atonement. This shed blood will not cover everyone. Consider the truth in the most common memory verse that we grew up learning as children. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish 
but have eternal life. Does this say that he gave his only son that everyone everywhere will not perish but have eternal life? No, it is only those who believe. Have you believed in this God? Have you placed your faith in the God of the universe who has a holy hatred against your sin, but he was willing to bear that on your own behalf? Despite all your rebellion, all your sinning, all your cosmic treason, he has made a way for you. And this was not done by a mere waving of the hand. Don't worry about it. It's all right. No. This was done by him bearing the penalty that you and I deserve. He took it upon himself. There's only one reason and one alone that God has not consumed us all in the full force of his wrath at this very moment. And it's not because we are undeserving. It is because of his long suffering and grace. But he will not delay forever. The wrath of the Lamb is coming, according to Revelation 6, 16. Every one of our sins will face the full force of the wrath of God. The question is, and listen to this question, will it be in fury and fire eternally, or will it be on the cross of Christ? Those are the only options. If you are a believer in here wondering if this applies to you, does it ever? Be grateful and leave today with a sense of utter urgency to share of the shed blood of the Lamb for sin. Know that Jesus did not stay nailed to the cross, but rose, ascended into heaven, and is at the right hand of the Father. He has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, and he is with you always to the end of the age. Don't waste a minute of this life that God has given you and purchased for you with his own blood. As well, how can we turn the other cheek and bear unrighteous insult? That's where we started, right? Imitate your Savior. How can we turn the other cheek? Imitate the Savior who turned your wrath upon himself. For those in here wrestling to believe, I plead with you, do not drive off this property until you have placed your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. You don't have to bear the wrath for your sins. Forgiveness is being offered. Grasp hold of it. If you are sensing the Holy Spirit softening your heart, making you aware of your sin and your debt before this holy, righteous, wrathful God, then run to him. And do you know what the scripture says? All those who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. If you confess your sins before him, he will be faithful and just to forgive you of all unrighteousness, all of it. Why? Because Christ was forsaken on the cross on your behalf. The Lord will no longer look at you in the wrath for your sin, but as his son or daughter purchased by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Why was Christ forsaken? Why did he bear the wrath of God so that you may receive his grace if you believe in him? Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are unworthy. Even praying to you is this incredible reality of how can we approach you? How can you bear to hear the words of sinful men and women like us? You are so kind. You are so gracious. You are so merciful. And God, I pray that as believers, we would never lose sense of all that you've accomplished on our behalf. That we won't spend a moment of this life ungrateful for what the Lord of glory suffered on our behalf. And God, would you help us to not hoard this reality, but live this life on mission that you purchased for us, that we would be quick and ready to share of what you accomplished on that cross, that we would know nothing else but you and you crucified. And God, for those in here that don't know you, grab a hold of them. I know that there's nothing I can say or do to make them believe. That is only a work of your spirit. So God, would you soften their heart? Would your Holy Spirit awaken them? Give them new life. Experience the forgiveness of sins that they may walk and follow you. Lord Jesus, do what only you can do. And thank you eternally for what you've done. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do not leave here without reconciling with God. I will be up here. Any of the other pastors would love to talk to you. We have elders in the courtyard that would love to pray with you if there's any way we can be praying for you. But I urge you, do not delay in responding to the Lord of glory. Every heartbeat you have from now to your car is a gift from him. It's his long suffering that he's holding out there that you might respond to his grace and kindness of the cross. But don't delay. Follow him today. You are not entitled to another moment. Follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith Church, this is such an understatement. You are loved more than you can possibly imagine. And you are sent. God bless.